Part 3, Chapter 1 of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. Part 3, For the Health of the Soldiers, 1856-1861. We can do no more for those who have suffered and died in their country's service. They need our help no longer. Their spirits are with God who gave them. It remains for us to strive that their suffering may not have been endured in vain, to endeavour so to learn from experience as to lessen such sufferings in future by forethought and wise management. Florence Nightingale Reply to Address from the Parishioners of East Wellow, December 1856 Chapter 1 The Queen, Miss Nightingale and Lord Panmure August to November 1856 to shape the whisper of a throne. Tennyson Whenever the British people have muddled through a war, there is a time of repentance and heart-searching. England, the unready, turns round uneasily and thinks that she must now mend her ways. The lessons of the war must be learned. The word efficiency is blessed in every mouth. Radical reforms, with a view to ensuring a better state of preparedness next time, are canvassed and a few of them are sometimes carried out. And then to the hot fit, a cold fit succeeds. War and its lessons fade into the past. Economy displaces efficiency as the favourite word. Peace seems to be more likely than another war, and if war should unhappily come, it is cheerily hoped that England will again muddle through somehow. The spasm of reform is over leaving the permanent vis inertiae of ministers and departments once more in undisturbed possession. Reformers, familiar with this succession of flow and ebb, know that they must seize the favourable moment, and more or less is done, according as they are more or less prompt and energetic. In the field of the army medical service, where the Crimean War had exposed deficiencies both glaring and terrible, Large and far-reaching reforms were set in motion during the years immediately following the Crimean peace. Indeed, it may be said that from this period dates the first serious and sustained movement for the application of sanitary science to the British Army. That effective use was thus made of the spasm of repentance which followed the Crimean War was due primarily and mainly to the zealous cooperation of two individuals, the same two whose alliance formed the principal subject of the preceding part of this memoir, Sidney Herbert and Florence Nightingale. When her friend died in 1861, worn out prematurely by unceasing labours for the British Army, Miss Nightingale devoted to his memory an account of his work during the years 1856 to 1861. In that pamphlet, a model of lucidity and concision, while yet informed with comprehensive insight and not untouched by emotion, she made no reference of any kind to her own share in the work. She described the reforms, and said that in all that was done, Sidney Herbert was head and centre. And so in many respects he was. He was the chairman of the Royal Commission and the Subcommissions. He was afterwards Minister for War. He was from first to last the official head of the reform movement, and he was much more than the official head. 
he worked with unfailing zeal and threw his heart and soul into the work. Yet, if Sidney Herbert had written the account, he might have said that Florence Nightingale was the head and centre of it all. If she could have done little without him, so also might he have done little without her. He was in the foreground, she was in the background. His was the public voice. The words which he spoke or wrote were often the words of Florence Nightingale. He was the practical politician who carried out their common schemes. The initiating, the inspiring, the impelling force was hers. And she did much more than give general impetus. Her mastery of detail was ever at Mr. Herbert's elbow. I never intend to tell you, he wrote to her when the first of the royal commissions in which they cooperated was nearing its end, August 7, 1857, how much I owe you for all your help during the last three months for I should never be able to make you understand how helpless my ignorance would have been among the medical Philistines. God bless you! But between two such loyal allies and understanding friends, it were needless to apportion the relative shares. They spoke and wrote of their workings together as our cabinet, our cabal, or our mess. It is the story of this comradeship, rich in human interest and fraught with lasting benefit to the British army, that is to form the main subject of this and the following four chapters. 2. What Miss Nightingale needed on her return from the East, and what, had she thought only of herself, she would have taken, was a long spell of rest. She had been through a campaign of labour and anxiety, under conditions of strain and distress, such as might have undermined the strongest constitution. Mr. Herbert, who was in Ireland when she returned to England, surmised from her letters that she was overwrought, and sent her the prescription of his Carlsbad doctor, ni lear, ni ecrer, ni reflecher. After such severe tension of mind and body, a reaction was inevitable. He sent the prescription, but he did not expect her entirely to adopt it. I should doubt, he wrote to her uncle, with a mind constituted as hers is, whether entire rest, with a total cessation from all active business, would not be a greater trial and less effective for her restoration of health than a life of some, though very limited and moderate, occupation. He seems to have hoped that she might be persuaded to take up comparatively quiet nursing work in a London hospital. Presently they met, September, in the country house of their mutual friends, their Bracebridges, and Mr. Bracebridge thought that Mr. Herbert was lukewarm on the subject of army reform. Perhaps it was that he wished to consider Miss Nightingale's health and keep her free from exciting activity, but nothing was further from her thoughts than neutrality or passive spectatorship. She was burning for the fray, and flung all consideration of health aside in order to devote herself to rousing the lukewarm and organizing the resolute. To understand the passionate devotion, the self-sacrificing ardor with which Miss Nightingale set to work immediately upon her return, we must remember what she had seen in the East. She had identified herself, as we have heard, with the heroic dead, and she knew that many of her children, as she called them, had died, not of necessity but from neglect. No one, she wrote, can feel for the army as I do. These people who talk to us have all fed their children on the fat of the lard and dressed them in velvet and silk while we have been away. 
I have had to see my children dressed in a dirty blanket and an old pair of regimental trousers, and to see them fed on raw salt meat, and nine thousand of my children are lying, from causes which might have been prevented in their forgotten graves. But I can never forget. People must have seen that long, long, dreadful winter to know what it was. Others might have known the facts, but she felt them. The strength of her character and powers lay, however, in the combination of intense feeling with intellectual grasp. She not only felt the neglect which had sacrificed her children's lives, but she tabulated the causes. The facts which had come under her eye, the figures in which she summarized and analyzed them, filled her with a passion of resentment. During her residence in the eastern hospitals she had seen 4,600 soldiers die. And as she studied the figures, the conclusion was irresistibly borne in upon her that the greater number need not have died at all. Many of the diseases to which they had succumbed were induced, and others were aggravated in the hospitals themselves. Her personal observation told her that it was so. Statistical inquiry proved it. We had, she pointed out, during the first seven months of the Crimean campaign, a mortality among the troops at the rate of 60% per annum from disease alone, a rate of mortality which exceeds that of the Great Plague in London, and a higher ratio than the mortality in cholera to the attacks. By a series of reforms, largely the result of Miss Nightingale's own untiring efforts and vehement expostulations, this terrible rate of mortality was reduced. We had, during the last six months of the war, a mortality among our sick, not much more than among our healthy guards at home, and a mortality among our troops in the last five months, two-thirds only of what it is among our troops at home. It was obvious from this comparison that the mortality during the first period was largely preventable. Here was a complete example, history does not afford its equal, of an army, after a great disaster arising from neglects, having been brought into the highest state of health and efficiency. It was the most complete experiment ever made in army hygiene, and Miss Nightingale was filled with a passionate desire that the lessons of the experiment should be taken to heart by the nation, that such radical reforms should be made, as would render a repetition of the disaster and the neglects impossible in the future. She knew that nothing short of radical reform would suffice. There is nothing, she wrote in summarizing the neglect of sanitary precautions in Scutari, in the education of the medical officer, nothing in the organization or powers of the army medical department, nothing in the whole hospital procedure, nothing in the army regulations which would have met the case of these hospitals. And where a similar necessity to arise again, especially after the lapse of a few years of peace, the whole thing would occur over again. This is the frightful consideration which ought to make us recall over and over again this experience. Otherwise, let bygones be bygones. But this was not the whole case. Miss Nightingale carried further the principle, which in these days is perhaps at last coming to be understood, that success in war depends upon preparation in peace. You cannot improvise an army, said Lord Roberts, you cannot improvise the sanitary care of an army in the field, said Miss Nightingale. 
if the medical service in the field were deficient, if the lessons of sanitary science were neglected in war hospitals, it was probable, she perceived, that there were like defects at home. She put her thesis to the test of figures, and was appalled at the verification which they supplied. The idea had first occurred to her on meeting Dr. Farr, the statistician in the Registrar-General's office, at dinner with her friends Colonel and Mrs. Tullock. Dr. Farr had talked of mortality tables in civil life, and Miss Nightingale resolved to compare them with the death rate in British barracks. She found that in the army, from the age of twenty to thirty-five, the mortality was nearly double that which it was in civil life. This was the case even in the guards, who yet were select lives, the pick of the recruits. With our present amount of sanitary knowledge, she wrote to Sir John McNeill, March 1, 1857, it is as criminal to have a mortality of seven, nineteen, and twenty per thousand in the line, artillery, and guards in England, when that of civil life is only eleven per thousand, as it would be to take one thousand one hundred men per annum out upon Salisbury Plain and shoot them. No body of men being so much under control, none so dependent upon their employers for health, life, and mortality as the army. And again, March 28, this disgraceful state of our Chatham hospitals, which I have been visiting lately, is only one more symptom of a system which, in the Crimea, put to death 16,000 men, the finest experiment modern history has seen upon a large scale, this as to what given number may be put to death at will by the sole agency of bad food and bad air. She saw the facts and figures with piercing clearness, and personal recollections gave intensity to her convictions. She had deep pity for the victims of preventable disease, and still deeper admiration for the uncomplaining heroism with which such sufferings were borne. Nothing ever effaced from her mind what she had witnessed in this sort at Scutari and in the Crimea. We hear with horror, she wrote, of the loss of four hundred men on board the Birkenhead by carelessness at sea. But what should we feel if we were told that one thousand one hundred men were annually doomed to death in our army at home by causes which might be prevented? The men in the Birkenhead went down with a cheer, so will our men fight for us to the last with a cheer. The more reason why all the means of health which sanitary science has put at our command, all the means of mortality which educational science has given us, should be given them. Then she turned to the Crimea, described in the words of Sir John McNeill and Colonel Tullock the sufferings and the endurance of the troops, and drew her moral. Upon those who watched, week after week and month after month, this enduring courage, this unalterable patience, simplicity and good strength, this voiceless strength to suffer and be still, it has made an impression never to be forgotten. The Anglo-Saxon on the Crimean Heights has won for himself a greater name than the Spartan at Thermophilia, as his six-month struggle to endure was a greater proof of what man can do than the six-hour struggle to fight. The traces of the name and sacrifice of Iphigenia may still be seen in Taurus, but a greater sacrifice has been there accomplished by a handful of brave men who defended that fatal position even to the death. And if Inkerman now bears a name like that of Thermophilia, so is the history of those terrible trenches through which these men patiently and deliberately and week after week went, till they returned no more, greater than that of Inkerman.
truly were the Sebastopol trenches to our men, like the gate of the infernal regions, Lasciate ogni speranza, voi che entrate. And yet these men would refuse to report themselves sick, lest they should throw more labor on their comrades. They would draw their blankets over their heads and die without a word. Well may it be said that there is hardly an example in history to compare with this long and silent fortitude. But surely the blood of such men is calling to us from the ground, not to avenge them, but to have mercy on their survivors. To that cry, Florence Nightingale, at least, responded through every fibre of her being. She was resolved to be a saviour, and to press home every lesson of the Crimean campaign. The strength of her resolve was heightened by a sense of the responsibility which her opportunities laid upon her. She had enjoyed peculiar facilities for observing the whole medical history of the campaign. She had been able to take the measure of many of the military and medical officials. She knew which were the men from whom help might be expected in the work of reform, and of most of such men she had the ear and respect. Her popular fame added to the authority with which her experience and her services invested her. There were others who knew, or might have known, the facts as well as she. There were few who could exercise the same influence, and perhaps there was not one who could judge the facts with the same disinterestedness. She was not a politician. She had no party to defend, no officials to shield, no susceptibilities to consider. She had nothing to gain, nothing to lose, nothing to fear. She stood only for a cause, and come what might, she was resolved to fling every power of mind and body into it. Among her private notes of 1856 I find this, I stand at the altar of the murdered men, and while I live, I fight their cause. 3. The opportunity was not long in coming. For a week or two at Leah Hurst, she was engaged in such laborious but unexciting tasks as settling accounts and claims with the nurses, distributing the sultan's gift among them, answering congratulatory addresses and the like, escaping from public appearances, and dealing with hailstorms, as her sister called them, of miscellaneous letters. She was besieged by vegetarians, spiritualists, sectaries, and other birds of the feather that swooped down upon conspicuous personages. With distressed gentlewomen, she was a favorite prey. "'Can you find soldiers' orphans for me to educate?' wrote one, "'because I don't like leaving my sisters.' "'Please find a place for me,' wrote another, "'where there will be something to do, not derogatory. "'I am an Irish lady of family.' "'The begging letters were innumerable, "'and the answering of those was taken over by her sister. "'I think I can now repeat the formula to perfection,' she said, "'and I could write a begging letter at the shortest notice "'in the character of every individual, "'from a staff officer to a costermonger and a widow with six children.' But here Lady Verney's lively pen suggests some little injustice. Officers did occasionally write to Miss Nightingale, I find, to beg her vote and interest, as it were. But of begging letters proper, she told Mr. Kinglake that there had never come one to her from a soldier. Mr. Kinglake, I may here say, made her acquaintance in the spring of 1857, when her mind was full of the McNeil Tullock affair. She failed to make him take her view of that controversy, and her first impression of the historian-to-be of the Crimean War was that he would write a book more brilliant than judicial. Though I have no doubt he is a good counsel, she wrote, he strikes me as a very bad historian. 
three years later she wrote in a similar strain, I had two hours good conversation with Mr. Kinglake. I found him exceedingly courteous and agreeable, looking upon the whole idea as a work of art and emotion, and upon me as one of the colours of the picture, upon the Chelsea board as a safe, or rather an infallible authority, upon McNeil and Tullock as interlopers, upon figures, arithmetical, as worthless, upon assertion as proof. He was utterly and self-sufficiently in the dark as to all the real causes of the Crimean mortality, and you might as well try to enlighten Sir G. Brown himself. For Lord Raglan he has an enthusiasm which I fully share, but which entirely blinds Mr. Kinglake, who besides came home long before the real distress. To the causes of that distress I put him in possession of some of the materials. But I do not hope that he will. I am quite sure that he will not make use of them. Miss Nightingale here was wrong. Mr. Kinglake made considerable use of her materials, and drew from them and from his personal impressions an excellent picture of the lady-in-chief, though on the point about which she was concerned, the McNeil-Tullock affair, he remained of the same opinion still. Of Miss Nightingale's demeanour during her short holiday at home in August 1856, there is a pleasant account in a letter from her sister. She is better, I think, but I quite hate the sight of the post with its long official envelopes. She will go on as long as she has the strength, doing everything which cannot be left without detriment to the work to which she has devoted her life. I cannot conceive anything more beautiful than her frame of mind. It is so calm, so cheerful, so simple. The physical hardships one does not wonder at her forgetting to speak of, but the marvel to me is how the mental ones, the indifference, the ignorance, the cruelty, the falsehood she has had to encounter, never seem to ruffle her for one instant, and never have done, Aunt May says. It is as if she dwelt in another atmosphere of peace and trust in him which nothing wicked can dim. She speaks of these things sadly and quietly, as someone from another world might do seeing so plainly the excuses for the wrongdoers, while the personal part never seems to come in, and there is such a charm about her perfect simplicity. There is not the smallest particle of the martyr about her. She is as merry about little things as ever in the intervals of her great thought, and with as much interest about the little things of home as if she had not been wielding the management and organization of the material and spiritual comfort of the fifty thousand men passing through hospital and out. If you heard all the evidence we have had lately from doctors, chaplains, and officers, you would not think I am exaggerating in saying that these depended mainly upon her during the whole of these twenty-one months. As to her indifference to praise, it is most extraordinary. She just passes on and does not heed it, as it comes in every morning in its flood. Papers, music, poetry, friends, letters, addresses. The addresses and presentations which she most valued came from working men. A case of Sheffield cutlery presented by artisans in that city was always treasured and was the subject of a specific bequest in her will. She was much touched by an address from 1,800 working men at Newcastle-on-Tyne. My dear friends, she wrote in the course of her reply, August 1856, the things that are deepest in our hearts are perhaps what it is most difficult to express. She hath done what she could. These words I inscribed on the tomb of one of my best helpers when I left Scutari. 
it has been my endeavour in the sight of God to do as she has done. Presently there came to Leah Hurst a letter of much importance in Miss Nightingale's life. Her friend, Sir James Clark, the Queen's physician, wrote from Osborne, August 23, 1856, begging her to stay during the following month at his home, Burke Hall, near Ballater. The air of Scotland would be beneficial, he said, to her health, and there were other reasons. The court would shortly be moved to Balmoral. The Queen would doubtless invite Miss Nightingale there. Meanwhile, Her Majesty knew of the present invitation, and there would be opportunity at Burke Hall for quiet and informal talk in addition to any command visit at Balmoral. Miss Nightingale heard in this letter a call hardly less important than that to the Crimea two years before. She had served with the Queen's army in the East. Her services had received sympathetic support and approbation from the Queen and the Prince. She was now to have full opportunities for bringing to their knowledge, in personal intercourse, what she had seen of the soldiers' sufferings, and for enlisting their support, if she could, in what she knew to be necessary for the prevention of such sufferings in the future. She succeeded, as will presently appear, and she deserved her success by the thoroughness with which she prepared herself to make the best use of her opportunity. The two men who had thrown light most searchingly on the defects of the campaign in the matter of supply and transport were Sir John McNeill and Colonel Tullock. Miss Nightingale arranged to see and confer with the former at Edinburgh on her way to Ballater. Colonel Tullock, though he was far distant at the time, agreed to join the conclave, and meanwhile he wrote, from Killin, September 6, If Her Majesty should afford you an opportunity of telling the whole truth, as I think it likely she wishes to do from her desire to see you under another roof, without her inquiries being noticed, perhaps you might bring to her knowledge, etc., etc., various points which he deemed of special importance. Mr. Herbert's advice was more general. I hope, he wrote, September 9, that your highland foray will do you good, I am sure it will, if you find help and encouragement for your plans. I hope you will talk fully and illustrate by facts and details. They explain best. Men and women require picture books just as much as children when they are to learn something of which they know nothing previously. She armed herself by study of statistics, by collection of her notes and memoranda, by inquiries on all sides, for every occasion which a sympathetic interest of the Queen or the Prince might give her. She felt, and others felt, that great things might turn on her use of such occasions. The fullest and most suggestive letter she received was from Colonel Lefroy. He was employed at the War Office. He knew the weaknesses of his chief. He knew also the strength of the department to resist. He had been employed, as we have heard already, on a confidential mission to the Crimea, and had formed the highest opinion of the glorious fidelity, the self-sacrifice, the heroic courage and single-minded devotion with which Miss Nightingale had performed her duties in the East. He looked for great results from her visit to Scotland. Colonel Lefroy to Miss Nightingale, August 28th. I never had the good fortune to have an interview with the Queen, but I have had several with Prince Albert. The Prince exhibited such a remarkable knowledge of the subjects he was inquiring about, so strong and clear and business-like a capacity, that you will, I think, find it both expedient and necessary, or rather unavoidable, to enter into a full and unreserved communication of your observations, 
and be tempted irresistibly to let fall such suggestions as are most likely to germinate in that high latitude. If I am correct in this impression, a similar frankness with Lord Panmure follows. I was once amused by the prince remarking on a point of military education. I have urged it over and over again. They do not mind what I say, showing that even he cannot always overcome the vis inertiae of departmental indifference or prevail on people to move. It may be so in any question of medical reform. Lord Panmure hates detail and does not appreciate system. He can reform but not organize. It is organization we want, but which arouses every instinct of resistance in the British bosom, and it is this which can be least influenced by Her Majesty's personal interest in it. Like a rickety clumsy machine with a pin loose here and a tooth broken there and a makeshift somewhere else, in which the force of Hercules may be exhausted in a needless friction and obscure hitches before the hands are got to move, so is our executive with the treasury, the horse guards, the war department, the medical department all out of gear, but all required to move together before a result can be attained. He will be stronger than Hercules, who gets out of it the movement we require. I think I would recommend, a long statement of suggested reforms, including a commission to inquire into the existing regulations for hospital administration. In some form or other we have almost the right to ask at your hands an account of the trials you have gone through, the difficulties you have encountered, and the evils you have observed, not only because no other person ever was or ever can be in such a position to give it, but because, permit me to say, no one else is so gifted. It will be no ordinary task, and no ordinary powers of reasoning, illustrating, grouping facts will be requisite. Another might repeat what you told him, but the burning conviction, the vis viva of the soul, cannot be imparted. It appears to me that either a confidential report addressed to Lord Panmure upon a formal request, or evidence before such a commission as I have proposed above would be suitable means, the latter most so, as I fear that more publicity than attends confidential reports will be necessary. I earnestly hope that your interviews with the Queen and Lord Panmure may be the means of leading both to interest themselves effectually in the vital reforms required. The axe has to be laid at the root of the tree yet. Various friends tendered advice as to what Miss Nightingale should say if she were to be asked what the Queen could do for her. She might petition to be placed in charge of the new hospital about to be built at Netley, or to be appointed lady superintendent of nurses in all military hospitals, and so forth. Her own ideas were on the lines of Colonel Lefroy's letter. She would, first, tell the whole truth of the campaign, so far as it had come under her personal observation. If given any encouragement to proceed, she would explain in general terms the kind of remedies which she deemed essential. She would offer, if the conversation took a suitable turn, to embody her observations and suggestions in a written report. If further honoured by any suggestion of royal favour, she would ask, for herself nothing, but for the sake of the soldiers, a royal commission to inquire into the whole condition of barracks, hospitals, and the army medical department. End of Part 3, Chapter 1, The Queen, Miss Nightingale, and Lord Panmure Part 1